0: The antibody repertoire, for example, so the, amount, the different types of antibodies we have, it's millions, billions of antibodies, right? Because we have this BDJ recombination to begin with and the heavy light chain pairing. So that creates billions of different types of cells. And then all of those activated and go through the germinal center reaction, we would probably create trillions because each one will acquire mutations. You can get these beautiful trees of how they oh. acquire mutations and the lineage diversity they get.
1: to this week's episode of Further Research Needed, the comfy sweatpants of science okay. communication. We are the podcast with straightforward questions and not, post, not so straightforward answers. My name is Jan-Philipp Reising, and as usual, I'm joined by my lovely co-hosts,
2: Christopher Wood and Hannes Feurer.
1: And on top of that, we have a very special guest and dear friend of mine today, Sebastian Ols. and um, very welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you. So today, the question we're asking is, are antibodies overpowered? And the reason we're talking about this is that Sebastian and I had a very interesting conversation a couple of weeks ago, and he legit blew my mind. So I thought it would be a good topic to talk about. I thought I knew how antibodies worked and how they came about, and it turns out I don't. So I figured it's not just me that um, struggles with this. And in light of the current pandemic, I think it's a good idea to actually know how antibodies work since it has a huge influence on our current life. I think we should start with just Sebastian telling us a bit about what he's doing. So what are you up to these days? Uh,
0: These days, uh, lots of problems in the lab, but uh, (laughs) in general, uh, so the research I do is, uh, can be summarized in vaccine immunology. Um, So how, or basically how vaccines work, right? So I think it's quite telling right now, Like there's a lot of coronavirus vaccines and I think the public will know know a lot more today than ever about vaccines and especially that there's different vaccine technologies Uh, and that's what we study. So as you may have heard, there's like all these different vaccine platforms, adenovirus, mRNA, protein, uh, and that's what we study. We wanna know how these different platforms, what effects do they have on our immune system and what kind of immune response do they elicit? So that sort of later on, we can actually perform a rational vaccine design and say, we want this type of immune response, then we know this is the type of vaccine we should use. And not like we've done now for the coronavirus, for example, that we try all of them at the same time and just see which one works best, right? There's not been that much, like there's been rational, some type of rational design into the coronavirus vaccines that we have, but it's not been like, we're still throwing every single platform we have at the virus to see which one works out best. Uh, but we're trying to understand you know, how do these different platforms work and how can we more rationally use them in the future and design the vaccines that actually elicit the response that we want and that
1: would be protective, for example. That's uh, pretty yeah. fucking cool, I would say right so now. Cool, yeah, yeah. <laughs> pretty in demand. So what is it you do like actually in the lab? Like what's, what are the kinds of experiments you do? Just that we get an idea. Yeah,
0: Uh, so we do a lot of preclinical vaccine research. So so that means that we test vaccines in animal models. Um, And but we also now more recently also do some clinical research where we teamed up with uh, other researchers to study vaccines in humans. And we will be doing that now for the coronavirus vaccines that are being rolled out in Sweden, for example. Uh, But more importantly, we do a lot of animal research. Basically, we test vaccines in animal models. And we basically look at almost every aspect of the immune response that the vaccine elicits. So we look at early time points, like hours or days after vaccination, what happens. Uh, Usually this is in blood. uh, And then we study how the adaptive immune response develops over time. So our antibodies and T cells and so on. And we look at not only the magnitude of the response, because that's a key part of any vaccine, but the durability, uh, and if we can find any like correlation between the early response and the the late response. I guess we can summarize it like that. But we also do some mechanistic stuff, for example, that we look at, we can fluorescently label vaccines and give them to animals. And then we can actually track which cells they interact with uh, in the muscle or in the skin and in the draining lymph nodes where the vaccines go. Uh, to see how all of those things develop uh, and how that uh, correlates with the response you actually get later with the antibodies and T cells and so on. Um, Sebastian, do you, is, it, is there a
3: specific disease that you look at or it, or is it specifically
0: bacterial, viral, is there any? That's a very good question. And to be like very blunt about it, we don't really care about the disease. Mm-hmm. We, we, we study platforms, vaccine platforms, but of course we always have some disease, you have to put some kind of antigen, so some kind of virus protein or bacterial protein on the vaccine to make it relevant to study. Because uh, mm-hmm. you can't study a platform all by itself if it's not expressing something that we can measure an immune response against. Uh, so I've done uh, malaria vaccine, RSV vaccine, HIV vaccine. Others in the group have looked at border port- pertussis, uh, coronavirus, influenza rabies we do all kinds of things Uh, but we study different platforms more specifically like mrna vaccines like uh, protein nanoparticles or liposome particles or live attenuated bacterial vaccines uh, and so on
1: wow cool okay i almost forgot the most important part cheers everyone
2: cheers (laughs) cheers cheers just got one today
3: as a as a chemist trying to become a biologist, I think immunology is one of the hardest things to understand. So I'm definitely going to need this beer oh, yes. as we go forward. <laughs> it's so incredibly complex.
2: Um, Sebastian, when you say the different responses of the immune system to a different platform, what are the actual parameters you look at? Or maybe I mean you mentioned some of them, but could you maybe give a bit of an overview to us who don't know much about immunology? What uh, immune responses can there be? And which one might be important? And which one could we expect to change or have an impact on the efficacy of a vaccine?
0: Yeah, that's a good question. So uh, we look at, for example, if we talk about adaptive immunity, we have two types of cells that uh, we look at B cells and T cells. Uh, B cells are the cells that produce antibodies um, that circulate in our bloodstream, Mm -hmm. and they can attack the virus basically, and stop it from infecting our cells. So in terms of B cells, you can look at multiple things. You can look at the actual memory compartment of B cells and track how that fluctuates over time. So in terms of magnitude, um, but also in terms of genetic diversity, because you can sequence uh, those cells uh, and their B cell receptors. And the B cell receptor is basically a membrane-bound antibody. Or you can look at the, the antibodies that they've secreted. So the antibodies in the plasma or serum, and you can look at their magnitude in terms of binding response, how much can they bind, how many antibodies do you have that can bind your protein of interest, but also in terms of functionality. So binding is not everything. It's actually like, are they binding the correct part of the protein so that they can neutralize the virus so that the virus can't infect other cells? Mm-hmm. But not only neutralization, I think that's real, very hot right now in the media, like neutralization uh, that antibodies have to neutralize, but that's not the only function that antibodies have. So antibodies are basically these Y-shaped molecules where the tips of the Y are the binding fragments. And that's what binds uh, the protein target or the target of interest. And then there's a a crystallizable fragment region or the constant region, which is at the bottom of the Y. And that basically gives the effector function of the antibody. And one of the effector functions that doesn't actually utilize that uh, constant region is neutralization because it's all about binding the correct epitope and then you neutralize the virus. But otherwise, you have effector functions that are sort of like phagocytosis. You recruit cells to come and eat up the virus. You basically signal to these cells, this is an intruder, come and eat this thing up and get rid of it, basically.
2: And the signal, the signaling part of the antibody is then the, the stem of the Y, not exactly. the tips, is what you were meaning. Mm-hmm.
0: Exactly, yeah. Uh, so we can look at also that, what kind of other effector functions do the antibodies have? Uh, but something that I look at in particular is not only uh, how much of the binding response do we have, like how many antibodies do we have, but where are they binding? We try to map exactly where on the protein are they binding, which is basically. And the, if you look at a protein, it has um, different regions on a protein and those in immunology are called epitopes. So antibodies bind different epitopes. And we can look at uh, where, which, which epitopes are being targeted, and the magnitude of the response to these different epitopes?
2: How does it happen that um, a, that on the same vaccine, the same proteins that is being delivered in a vaccine, that so many different antibodies are being produced? Is it do we produce all sorts of different ones, or do we produce one different one per like exposure, or how does this how does this happen?
0: Yeah, we create like hundreds or thousands uh, of different
2: ones. So now yeah. I want to take a like an influenza oh. vaccine against one specific strain, which we don't, but like, or let's say HIV or something, or it's one specific strain I will produce thousands of like factually different proteins, antibodies against this target.
0: Yes, exactly. Uh, influenza is a bit more difficult. There's like other problems with like immunodominance of certain epitopes and in influenza. So I won't right. get into that. Uh, but yeah, HIV uh, or other uh, diseases, yeah, you create... A polyclonal response, many different antibodies.
2: Oh, yeah. uh, polyclonal means something. We learned this in high school. <laughs> <laughs> Not going back 10 years later.
0: <laughs> yeah. So maybe then we can go back a bit to the beginning. We we talked a lot, we're talking a lot about B cells now. So let's we can rewind a little bit. So B cells are like basically where does all this diversity come from? Like how do we get a polyclonal response? Well, that's because B cells are highly diverse. So we're pumping out B cells from the bone marrow constantly. Each B cell is unique,
2: uh, or
0: almost unique, but and they're unique because we have something called uh, VDJ recombination. So, uh, and that's basically a way to use our very limited genome basically to create as many different variants uh, of B cells as possible, so that we can have a very good set or a very broad set of precursors that will be able to react to anything that gets thrown at our immune system.
3: So um, this was, uh, Phil teased us with this fact uh, last week um, and I'm I'm really intrigued with this. So we have a a section of our genome that uh, like has a lot of different variations per different cell in it. and it's to do with the B-cells, but are there any other examples of that mechanism being used in the body? Do we have any other areas where we get this kind of
0: accelerated altering of the genome? Uh, So in terms of recombination, T-cells also do the same thing. So the T-cell receptor is also recombination, but there is a bit slightly more limited. They don't have as many uh, different genes or alleles to recombine, uh, so they have slightly less diverse uh, repertoire there. But B cells, we basically have. So an antibody is made up of a heavy and a light chain. And the, for example, the heavy chain has, you can recombine, there's about, I think, 100, 140 different V alleles. Then there's like five to 10 D alleles and another like 10 to 15 J alleles. And you can combine those three in every single different combination. So you mm-hmm. create sort of like a 10 to the power of six or 10 to the power of seven different combinations. And then you have exactly the same thing happening with the light chain as well. But there you only have a V and a J, and you can recombine those, and you can pair different heavies and light chains. So you get like 10 to the power of 11 different combinations, theoretically. Mm -hmm. Now we don't actually express all of those in the body, but theoretically we have a very, very diverse pool of B cells uh, that could basically react to anything that gets thrown at us.
2: I have a question here. So this sounds quite familiar from... Um, basic biology, I've learned some of these facts, but now I have a different concept of, of the cell and everything in my head now. So now this, I have to put this in different context of what you say now. The word uh, allele, I've learned in the context of Mendelian genetics, where you have some uh, phenotype, or it would be the genotype corresponding to some genotype, right? In this case, the allele you're referring to is a very short segment. Is it what is even called the gene, I guess, which which then produces part of the heavy chain. So the heavy chain is in turn again separated in three parts You say J, V and C,
0: was it? Uh, V, D and J.
2: V, D, Uh, J, so close.
0: Yeah, so the variable diversity and junction. Okay, okay. So They are genes, uh, but why we usually refer to them as alleles is because there's allelic diversity in the human population. So maybe Mm -hmm. all of us carry the VH169, Gene, but we might have like one nucleotide mutation in there, like a SNP. Everybody has different one. So basic, but it's still the same gene. But we have different alleles of the same gene in the human yeah. population. Yeah.
2: And of these, we have different versions, which are then scrambled together to make new, new proteins. Yeah. And how how far do they now actually vary? So I'm a bit a bit of a structural biologist, and I did work with quite some protein structures, mm-hmm. and. So from this perspective, I'm wondering how much they, one antibody actually differs from the other in, um, in amino acid sequence, but also in actual 3D space. Is this then just almost arbitrary, or how does this work?
0: That's a very good question. So in terms of sequence, that's a hard one. I don't, I don't know the numbers there, but we have basically uh, in humans, I think we have seven different V families. If we just look at the V... Uh, the V is the longest uh, gene that makes up the, the antibody. In terms, uh, And there we have 140 different genes, but they can be split up into seven different families. And those families are more similar than uh, with genes that fall into the same Just family are more similar by sequence. Exactly. Mm-hmm. But then um, in terms of structure, all antibodies pretty much look the same, at least in, if you look at them, There are these Y-shaped molecules always pretty much, right? But where they differ is in these, they have these three loops at the tip and also the antibody binding, uh, that's the binding region. And these are like three loops that are termed complementarity determining regions. And it's CDR1, Mm -hmm. 2, and 3. And those can be slightly different than between different antibodies. So Uh, especially the CDR3 can be of different lengths.
2: So these determine, or these are determined by, by the different uh, V alleles, and in turn produce a different. I want to say, I just use the word shape for whatever kind of different three D chemistry you can think of to bind all sorts of different or be very specific to all sorts of other protein shapes on the epitope of the of let's say the virus. Exactly. Now, is there any discrimination against structure on the other side because i guess protein structure can also be very very different is there maybe some more discrimination towards unstructured region or something is is that something is known
0: you mean uh, when it's binding the the target
2: yeah how the target often looks like or is there any discrimination things that cannot be recognized or
0: no not really uh -hmm. i think like maybe In general, antibodies don't tend to bind like glycans. There are antibodies that bind glycans, but glycans on other proteins Mm. are basically sort of like, they mask something and make a surface silent so that the immune system doesn't recognize it. So that's the problem with HIV envelope, the main target of the HIV virus. Mm -hmm. Uh, It's highly glycosylated. So basically it masks its whole surface so the immune system doesn't recognize it.
3: Can I just... um... Uh, put into context here some of the the, the um, how amazing antibodies are so you guys are dropping antibodies like oh yeah they just bind stuff and that's and it kind of sort of jumping over one huge thing that I as a chemist I still can't quite get over I use antibodies in my day-to-day work we use them to make our diagnostic devices so they're doing the binding that we're talking about and the discrimination that these antibodies have for another protein is incredible. It's we as as humans we cannot create things as good as antibodies. We now have some synthetic analogs, but they aren't nearly as good as what the antibodies can do. the uh, uh, The attraction, so the amount that they hold the other protein in, is is extremely strong, and it's and it does depend between the antibodies, but it also the discrimination for even slight changes in protein structure is incredible it's just that yeah they're, they're incredible proteins and um I, there was I, there was one really great um analogy as to what these things are doing so it's imagining if you stood in a football stadium filled with a million people and you found your friend inside that that group of a million people and then held on to them in the time span of say in, in an ELISA plate, what thirty minutes? You grabbed hold of that person and saw them. We can't do it as humans, and it's chemically, it's an incredible challenge. And they just, you know, casually do it. Every organ, every mammalian organ, organism certainly does it pretty easily. Um, so, sorry, just to, just to the side.
2: I have to, I have to ask now: Did you said mammalian? In which trees of life do we find antibodies, or where, where do we not? Is it? Oh, it's also other animals, <laughs> isn't it? There's sharks. There's definitely sharks.
0: We use shark antibodies.
3: <laughs> They're uh, not Yeah. Mammals,
0: are they? <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, that's a very good question. I uh, I only look in <laughs> human-like species. Let's say that. But we also have uh, yeah in mice and all kind all kinds of mammals. I think produce them at least.
2: Um, mm-hmm. Does doesn't organism a like stream? insects Plants and don't stuff? Have them. I don't
0: know if they have antibodies, but I'm uh,
2: mm-hmm. okay.
0: I don't know.
3: The, uh, they say no, but I'm not sure. Uh, so there are t- certain types of special antibodies. So some that don't have the heavy region on them. Um, so camelids, so uh, llamas. They don't
0: have the light chain region. Sorry, whoops, light chain. <laughs> Shit. And now I get fired from my job. <laughs> 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 but
1: yeah, so there's
3: sharks and camelids are used a lot because their antibodies are so different to, to mammalian or to, to uh, human uh antibodies um so they're quite good for our diagnostics but um yeah there's a lot of different ones out there
2: okay but now now you start the segue chris with specificity and affinity how does this come about sebastian how is that trained i think that's one of the key points of today
0: yes exactly Uh, so that's something called affinity maturation um And that happens in lymph nodes. Uh, So, lymph nodes are these structures that hold tons of B cells and T cells that are just sitting there waiting for their antigen, their cognate antigen, to arrive and activate them, basically. And a B cell, once it meets its antigen, it will internalize it, process it, and then try to present it to a T cell and find, basically, its body. So, another a T cell that recognizes the same thing as the B cell. And if they find each other, they will start what's called the germinal center reaction. And that's where affinity maturation happens.
2: Wait, wait, to, to roll it back one step. So our yep. lymph-, lymph nodes, there's these things that swell up in my, under my chin when I get, get a cold. Yep. They're full yes. of different, different cells that present different um, antibodies. And they're just sitting there, waiting until some virus comes along. The entire lymph node is flushed with the virus. One is going to lift their hand and say, it's me, it's me. And then they go and do something. Exactly. Before that, they're always just sitting there. All these random combinations of antibodies or the matching T-cells that are just sitting there the entire time.
0: Yeah. That's so weird. (laughs) (laughs) They might circulate between different lymph nodes, right? Because we have tons all through our body. And they can circulate. uh, It's
2: the ultimate sleeper. (laughs)
0: Wow. But it's not, it's never just like one B cell that reacts to something that arrives, right? Because a protein has multiple different epitopes. So you can have, you'll have multiple different B cells react to Mm -hmm. the the, the virus uh, that comes in, for example, to the lymph node. So multiple different cells will react and they will all go into basically the germinal center reaction, which is sort of like a school. uh, And that's where affinity maturation happens. Uh, And in, The germinal center reaction, we can divide it it up into two zones, something we call the dark zone and something we call the light zone. And the dark zone, it's termed as dark because when you do like immunohistochemistry stainings, it's very, very dense in cells because that is where cells are proliferating. So B cells are basically proliferating like crazy in this dark zone and dividing. And every time they divide, they're acquiring mutations. Jan, you have a question?
1: So... (laughs) just to like one step back that we are so we are sitting in the lymph node there are all these b cells and they all produce one type of antibody right yeah they're just waiting for their whatever target to come along now we get infected with like i don't know COVID maybe so we get some kind of antigen that is getting close by and then the b cell that binds that target that one starts proliferating correct yep so it's not all the B cells, it's just the ones that find their, their target, correct?
0: Exactly. They have to find their target, but they also have to find their friend. They have to find the T cell because the T cell has to give them the signal to proliferate. So it's that's sort of like one of these control mechanisms that we have in the body. So we don't get just random proliferation all the time of our cells. They have to find another cell that has also been activated. The T cell also has to be activated. They find each other and then they give they give each other the correct signals to start the germinal center reaction and start to proliferate.
1: Okay. So then we get more and more of the same types of B cells that find that target and then Exactly.
0: So they 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 so it's clonal proliferation. So one B cell will pro, will make basically daughter cells, but each daughter cell will be slightly different from the original cell because they are trying to become better at binding their target. And they do this by inserting mutations or by Making mutations in their antibody genes, so in these V D J genes, they are inserting mutations, either insertions or deletions, or actually just changing some nucleotides to try to get better affinity. But this is basically random, so it's evolution at a small scale because there. So
2: that means we have in this replication process. So our body all the t- tries to correct DNA damage all the time, and there we have a set of proteins that work on DNA, nucleases, I think we call them, who only in this very specific region keep making mutations, cutting yeah. on nucleotides, inserting a different one, completely random, but specified to these alleles, yes. not in other parts of the genome. That would be detrimental. Exactly. exactly. And do you know how this is specified to this region? Is there... What, how, a, how does that work?
0: Yeah, there's a certain enzyme and it's not like... I I haven't studied that very well, but it's not completely known, I think, exactly how it's working, but the enzyme is called AID, so activation-induced cytidine deaminase, so basically it, it attacks just one sort of nucleotide, and then the DNA repair mechanism will just switch that out to a random other nucleotide, so, and that's how the changes occur and this AID has some kind of like it finds some kind of motifs in uh-huh. these regions to make those um,
2: that's fascinating the, the
0: the thing I'm intrigued with you said that they
3: um they're trying to find better affinity how does it how does the body measure that affinity like where does that sense of bindingness come from well,
0: yeah that that's uh that's a very complicated uh, story, <laughs> but I'll try to explain it now. And that's, there's still a lot of research being done here because it's not fully understood uh, how we, we are acquiring like, or how the body knows that you have better affinity, right? Mm. But it's basically competition. It's survival of the fittest, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. So it's Darwinian evolution. So basically in the dark zone, we're proliferating, we're creating all these different daughter cells that are acquiring mutations trying to get better, but they don't know that they're getting better or not, right? Because they're having, they're introducing random mutations in their antibody genes. And some of these mutations, or the majority of them, most likely will be deleterious, and the, maybe the antibody is not produced correctly, so it can't bind anything. And then that cell will have to be told to die because... It hasn't acquired a good mutation. Yeah, We lose a lot of cells that this way it's basically the majority of cells will die in this reaction because they have not gotten the correct mutation Mm -hmm. and this is all based on competition so in the dark zone they're proliferating right and then once they feel like they have proliferated enough or gotten correct we don't know what signal tells them to go over to the light zone but they move over into the light zone and in the light zone, you have two different cells that they will interact with. One of them is follicular dendritic cells. Uh, and, these, and they are okay. specialized at capturing antigen and just retaining antigen on their surface for B cells to interact with. So B cell will go to this follicular dendritic cell and try to grab a hold of its antigen. And that's where the first type of competition happens, because the higher affinity you have the easier it will be for you to grab that antigen from the follicular dendritic cell in competition with other cells that are also trying to grab it. The higher affinity, the more or the, the more of that antigen you will grab from the follicular dendritic cell. Once you've grabbed that antigen, the B cell internalizes it and presents it on MHC class two. So this is antigen presentation You process uh, a protein into peptides, and you present these on these molecules called MHE. Uh, And MHE class 2 is what uh, interacts with CD4 T cells, T helper cells. And they are the T cells that also sit in the follicle and that give you the survival signal or tell you to die.
2: This is a metaphor we should not translate to humans this is very brutal
3: i'm I'm already writing like a sci-fi book
0: based on <laughs> it's like i suppose it is the hunger games but based on immunology yeah. but yeah cool <laughs> so this is where the second part of competition happens uh because these t-cells that are in the follicle are limited there's only a couple of them and they are very stingy in giving away the correct survival signals so the other way that you can compete for their attention is to present as much as possible on your surface. And so then the more antigen you were able to grab to start with, the more you can present on your surface and the easier it'll be for you to get the attention of those T cells and the correct survival signals. So that's how our body knows that affinity is improving because you were able to get more of the antigen, you must have better affinity. Then you will get the correct signal And here we don't know how the T cell differentiates because the T cell can tell you basically three different things. It can tell you that, no, you have the wrong affinity, go die uh, and get rid of that specific clone or it'll tell you, no, I think you need to mutate some more and get slightly better affinity. So it'll tell you to go back into the dark zone, proliferate again, acquire more mutations and, and test your affinity again, or it knows somehow that, no, you have good enough affinity now. Now you can differentiate into a memory cell or a plasma cell. Uh, and the memory cells are these quiescent cells or so resting cells that are basically armed for the next time you encounter the virus or the pathogen. While plasma cells are, are antibody-producing factories. They, all they do is churn out that single antibody that they have, their B cell receptor. They just churn that out into the bloodstream so that we have antibodies that can recognize the pathogen the next time it comes, comes around. And there again, we don't know which signal tells that B cell to become a memory or plasma cell. And how does that T cell know to differentiate between which of those cell types you should become.
2: Can we quickly um, back, go back to the other checkpoint? Yes. Now, I had to think quite hard about this and you lost me a bit in the process of what you were doing after. The... Maturing B cell, or the maybe not maturing, maybe you call it the one that is still working on its on its um, anti and antibody, and presents it's currently in developing the antibody to the T cell, which discriminates which of the three pathways it's going to take. And you said it's going to the T cell probes for affinity. This is we don't know how it does it. So affinity in molecular biology means how tight and how strongly two molecules bind. So the selectivity this discrimination is already established and the t cell only probes for maybe that's what for affinity that maybe that's what was so fascinating to chris and it so is it to me how a molecule can probe such a property because the way we probe these are i'm just assuming very different with maybe elisas or other mm-hmm. other techniques so is the, is there any i don't have no idea how we to start thinking the models i hold of cellular and molecular biology in my head are not sufficient to even come up with any idea for this so so they're not
0: actually uh so let, yeah let's go back a few steps so they're not actually probing the affinity right because that's mm-hmm. kind of in, like it is hard to imagine how they would do that but they're doing it sort of in an indirect way uh, because they are the, the affinity is being probed, probed in the first competition step because to be able to grab a hold of antigen that's on the follicular dendritic cell, you have to have high affinity because you are competing right. with thousands of other B cells that are trying to grab exactly mm-hmm. the same protein as you. So the higher affinity you have, the more likely it will be that you grab a hold of that protein and you take it for yourself.
2: Right, that's actual competition. Yeah, it makes yeah. sense.
0: And then, so the, only the B cells that have managed to grab antigen, they are the only ones that will be able to interact with the T cell. Because to interact with the T-cell, they're not interacting with their B-cell receptor, which is the antibody, but they're interacting with another molecule, this MHC molecules that are used for antigen presentation. And they present peptides of the protein that they grabbed a hold of, processed it, basically cleaved it into tiny little peptides, then they present Mm -hmm. those to the T-cell and make sure to find a T-cell that recognizes exactly that little peptide that they're presenting. We don't know what
2: the T cell does with that peptide or what it wants from the peptide. Is that known? No. This this is so the T cell
0: the T cell the T cells recognize with their T cell receptor. They recognize peptide strings that are presented on MHC molecules. And there's two types of MHC molecules. There's class one and class two. Class one. Every cell in our body can present peptides on class one. And class one is recognized by CD8 T-cells, or killer T-cells. So, and the only way a killer T-cell will kill another cell is if they recognize the correct peptide on that MHC1 molecule, then they will be like, yes, I recognize you, you're probably infected with something that you shouldn't be, Uh, now I'll kill you, basically. That's MHC1. But then we have MHC2, And MHC2 is not expressed by all cells in our body. That's expressed by a specific type of immune cell, which are called antigen-presenting cells. And that's a family of different cells, uh, including dendritic cells, monocytes, and all these different types of phagocytes, but also B cells. B cells are also antigen-presenting cells. They can present on MHC class 2. And the T cell that recognizes MHC class 2 are CD4 T cells or T helper cells. Because they're called helper cells because they help B cells. So all CD4 T cells help, try to help, or basically almost all types of CD4 T cells, <laughs> try to help B cells out in some way or another.
2: Now, a bit of a trivial question. When you say the, um, the T cell or the, the killer cell, tell uh, you, you said the, the killer cell or they tell it to die, that's an, an apoptosis signal. Is that... Not that some listeners confuse it, it doesn't actually eat the other cell, it triggers it to die, is that correct? Yeah,
0: so either it can trigger apoptosis, or yeah, it won't eat the other cell, but it can release different uh, molecules, granzyme uh, and other molecules, perforin, which will basically perforate. the So perforin will perforate the cell membrane of the other cell, so granzyme can get in and that will trigger apoptosis or different kinds of
1: cell death but it
2: could also be They'll a damage. pathway like necroptosis or something that would lead the cell to almost rupture and yeah fall apart yeah oh, interesting
1: i mean when sebastian told me about this like my mind was so blown like the same moment that chris had like earlier where it was like oh so much diversity it's just like that mechanism that utilizes kind of like survival and proliferation and it's just amazing what our body body is doing with for us without us having any control over it It just does its thing and it's amazing at doing so yeah um and i also realized talking to you today it's just so badass and brutal like it's proliferation <laughs> and they're competing and fighting and if you don't shape up you just straight up die or be forced to kill yourself i mean that's some game of thrones type scenarios here <laughs>
3: It's, it's also, like, Sebastian, you've done a, a really great job of telling us, how, like, the story of how it works, um, but the, the, the way I'm imagining it, it's people doing it, right, because it's all about recognition and decision-making, and you come along, you find someone, you're like, this is good, this is bad, but it's, but it's all done... It, or not automatically, but like, these are all just chemical processes happening and exchanging proteins and binding different things. And it's, it's insane that there's no driving thought process or something like that, that would be going on. I, I find it insane. It's so cool.
2: The one that I find very fascinating is that they factually all have a different genome. And, and that is something that we keep telling ourselves that every cell in the body has the same genome. And that's, at least with my limited knowledge, still true for most cases, even though we know that the genome is modified and there's epigenetic factors, but they have a factually different nucleotide sequence in specific genes. That's, that is mind blowing, absolutely.
0: So the antibody repertoire, for example, so the, amount, the different types of antibodies we have, it's millions, billions of antibodies, right? Because we have this VDG, VDJ recombination, to begin with, and the heavy light chain pairing. So that creates billions of different types of cells. And that all of those, if, for example, if all of those billions would be activated and go through the germinal center reaction, we would probably create trillions or whatever other huge number you can think of because each one will acquire mutations and they're all just like, you can get these really beautiful trees. If you sequence B cells you can get these beautiful trees of how they oh. acquire mutations and the lineage diversity they get. And that's some of the research I do. Like I look at how B cell lineages, um, how they have evolved over time after vaccination to develop like, for example, a super potent antibody. And then we can trace that back through time to see like, what was the precursor cell that gave us that antibody um, and where, where, when and where did it acquire the mutations that it needed to acquire that breadth or potency that it has? And that's, that's a very popular field of study right now uh, with coronavirus or specifically HIV. HIV vaccine research has pushed the vaccine field forward for many, many years because all of this basically, we started studying all of this because of HIV and now we're where we are today with vaccine research and all these different immunology topics. Is that because HIV is such a difficult thing to vaccinate against? Yes, Mm. because HIV in one person, you have probably like thousands or even millions of different versions of the virus in your body because it's so bad at replicating it acquires mutations like crazy, just so by replicating good at itself. It's so, <laughs> good at muta- it's so good at mutating that basically have these millions of different versions. So your body is just going crazy and trying to re- re- react to every single one. So it doesn't really develop a response that can take care of all of them, except in some people. So some people can acquire broadly neutralizing antibodies. So, but that's after like years of infection of chronic infection for like five, 10 years, are being exposed to the virus, different versions of the virus. They acquire antibodies that can neutralize tons of different versions of this virus. Um, some they've isolated antibodies can neutralize like 90% of known HIV strains.
2: Uh, we do not know antibodies. what makes these antibodies special and so general, or are they just so special for all the types that came up in this body because they were trained for years? Is there yeah, it's a, which one it, is it?
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's hard to know. So one of the things that we do know about these antibodies is that they're highly, highly mutated. Uh, so if you think think about vaccine elicited antibodies, you can think about that we acquire maybe like twenty mutations uh, per antibody uh, that we can find uh, after vaccination. While these people that have been mm-hmm. chronically infected, they have hundreds of mutations in any single antibody. So they've basically been through this general center reaction multiple times and each time trying to sort of adapt to get get around the the virus's own evasion strategies
2: um wow I, I, that's a it's, whole different a, type of optimization sorry chris you go
3: no I, I think this is a really interesting point because i've certainly read some posts on the internet where because we've managed to create now, I think we're up to about five different vaccines against the coronavirus and they are so effective, like 95% efficacy is, is a, you know, a really, really good accomplishment. But people are like saying, oh, well, if we could have done that, like why couldn't we have a vaccine for AIDS? Like it's just, it's, they're, they're implying that it's some sort of conspiracy theory. Um, that we haven't tried to target TB, malaria, AIDS, all of these big endemic diseases that are, exist in the world today. Um, but from what you've said, Sebastian, there's actual biological reasons why those diseases are so particularly difficult to to, to do what we do. And we're lucky that COVID is easy in that sense. It's not
2: easy. That, but it's, That's <laughs> my question. Is, it, is, it, is there anything that's actually easier about COVID or do we just put more work into it?
0: No, it's like Chris was saying, it is easier.
2: It is actually easier. Yeah. That's so very
0: I, I get that question as well from tons of people. They're like, why, <laughs> why, how can we develop a vaccine against COVID in one year when we've had, you know, HIV AIDS for 30, 40 years? Why, why don't we have uh, a vaccine against HIV? And it's because of the biology of the pathogen. So TB is super hard. Malaria is super hard. And also HIV because of, they have very complicated life cycles and they have very elaborate ways of evading our immune system. And one of the ways that HIV does this is not only because it, you know, it mutates a lot, but because the main target cell that it infects are our CD4 T helper cells. Mm-hmm. And they kill off all our, basically all of our T helper cells. So we, they can't help us mount a good B cell or antibody response. So they're targeting our like the link in our it's immune system. That helps how us does it fight even it. work? That's cheating.
2: On. <laughs> how does so, it especially in the light of um, that some uh, that the um, the virus itself mitigates the help of its own immune system, how does can it happen that some people still develop such an amazing immunity? Do they somehow bypass that or do they find other? I don't know.
0: Yeah, that's, that's a very good question. And it's, uh, it's, I don't think it's completely known how, like why certain people elicit these broadly neutralizing antibodies, but not all, not all people that get infected with HIV will develop these types of antibodies. It's a rare occurrence, but what is common with all these people that develop these antibodies is that they've been chronically infected for years. Um, and th- but there are cases of like s- children infected with HIV that have developed these in maybe like two years instead of the usual like five to 10 years. Uh, and people are trying so it's to still a that.
2: probability thing.
0: Yes, exactly. It's that's our, that's our
2: big- accelerated evolution versus the virus is naturally fast evolution.
0: Yeah. And it wow. some people also think that it has to do with our precursor cells, right? This VDJ recombination, because that is random and all of us will have maybe. We, we, we all have certain clones that are shared between multiple people, uh, right? And these we call public clones. But the frequency in which these clones exist in different people varies. So certain people might be predisposed to develop a certain type of response because they have more of that mm-hmm. cell waiting around for that pathogen to arrive. So they might have a head start just because of that. Uh, and this is something that certain researchers are actually trying to improve on. So there's certain types of vaccine strategies, which are termed germline targeting. So what they're trying to do is they design a protein to specifically activate these precursors and expand them. And they're doing this for HIV, but they're trying to activate and expand a certain type of precursor that they know can develop broad neutralization because they have isolated antibodies from infected people that had broad neutralization then they've traced that lineage back to this precursor and they're trying to activate that precursor in every person they immunize with this antigen to expand and This it is what you meant with rational design
2: of vaccines.
0: Yes, exactly. That's rational design of the antigen for the vaccine. Uh, then there's the so another rationality in terms of, because let's see, we can, we can divide vaccine design into four broad steps. Uh, so we have antigen design, which is what I was just describing now that you design an immunogen that will activate a certain type of cell. Uh, and this we've done for COVID in terms of that we've stabilized the spike protein in its pre-fusion confirmation. So that is antigen design. And then we have formulation. How do we give this antigen to people? Um, and there in COVID we have all these different vaccine platforms, right? mRNA, mm-hmm protein as subunits adenovirus vectors whole inactivated virus all these different strategies to formulate that antigen and then we have the choice of adjuvant so adjuvant is very important because proteins in general are not good danger signals for the body if you inject just a protein in the body you won't get even if it's a foreign protein you won't get a very good immune response because the body won't really recognize it as dangerous to a large extent. So you inject other molecules with the protein that are the danger signals that tell our body to, hey, react to this protein that's coming with me, right? Uh, And adjuvants, there's all different kinds of adjuvants. um, But one of them that's very hot right now is basically that mRNA vaccines. mRNA vaccines are interesting in the way that not only are they Producing, they're, they're, they have the genetic code to produce the antigen that you want, so the spike protein in this case. But mRNA in itself is an adjuvant because our body mm-hmm. has mechanisms inside our cells to recognize foreign RNA and foreign DNA, and then, so they will recognize the mRNA in the vaccine. So it has a self-adjuvanting effect. It'll mm-hmm. make cells realize, hey, this is also dangerous. So that's why you also get a very good response against the spike protein.
3: Is that because, but, is that so because it's RNA itself or is it because coded at the end of the sequence to the, pro, to the spike protein is more instructions to the cell to tell it to get angry and to, to begin
0: doing stuff? Oh, it's because it's RNA itself. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Yeah. So, and here we can distinguish maybe between two different types of mRNA vaccines. So if you talk about Pfizer and Moderna, that's modified mRNA vaccines. And what that means is that they've modified one of the nucleosides, Uh, they modified it, chemically modified it to make it less reactogenic or immunogenic. So basically they're silencing it to the immune system because if you give mRNA, uh, like, actual the the normal the unmodified mRNA it's super uh, immunogenic and the body will just a cell that takes that up will just like shut down immediately because it knows that that's foreign and then it'll basically kill itself the cell will kill itself and it will not produce the protein that you want it to produce Mm -hmm. because our body has mechanisms to shut itself down if it gets infected so cells that get infected with virus they know to shut down so that they don't help the virus reproduce. And then viruses have mechanisms to evade that, of <laughs> course, and that's why they can <laughs> proliferate in our body. But mRNA vaccines don't have, yep. they don't have that extra stuff to, to evade the immune system. So what they've done is they've modified the sequence by modifying the actual nucleoside so that it's not recognized as well. It's still recognized, but not as well as before. Uh, and that's why you can also increase production of the protein of interest
1: super cool okay i think we're running out of time unfortunately (laughs) but this was extremely informative sebastian thank you so much um so yeah that was our episode on our antibodies op in my opinion i have no idea how any um pathogen is even managing to to infect us because antibodies are fucking awesome as we've learned today If you want to check out our other stuff, um, you can find us on any other podcasting platform of your choice. Check out our website, frn-podcast.com, or check out our Patreon. So maybe if we have some more questions for Sebastian and he's willing to spend some more time, you can find the rest of um, this talk there. And see you in two weeks.